0: Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor, and in today's episode, we're exploring the world of payments in emerging markets. The payment sector remains at the forefront of financial services, of course, and the sector is evolving in countless exciting ways. Nowhere is that evolution more obvious or eye-catching than in emerging markets who are not laboured with the old infrastructure that we have to deal with across Europe and North America, and have often leapfrogged markets directly into the future in various ways. However, they come with their own challenges and quirks and opportunities, and we're going to dig into all of those in this episode with a focus on Africa, India, and the Middle East. So, you know, small part of the world there, just everyone. Um, We're asking, what do the payments markets currently look like in these territories? What issues do they face? And what could the future hold? Uh, But before we get into all of that, we just want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS. Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11fs.com forward slash decoding. Enjoy. All right, let's get started. As always, I'm not alone. I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on all things payments and emerging markets, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have uh, Wiza Jalakasi, who's VP of Developer Relations over at our friends in Chipper Cash. Wiese, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you give our listeners an intro to Chipper Cash and your relationships with the payment sector?
1: Well, thank you so much, Simon. It's a pleasure to be back Uh, At Shipper Cash, we operate uh, Africa's largest smartphone-first cross-border mobile money platform. It's a bit of a mouthful, but basically we help over 5 million users move money more easily within the continent's borders and outside of it, as well as participate in global financial industries through fractional stock trading, as well as a little bit of crypto on the side. I am a career uh, technology operator uh, with about 12 years experience building out stuff on mobile, about five years experience building out uh, fintech for the continent specifically. And yeah, that's me in a nutshell. I tweet a lot. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, check out Weezer on Twitter if you can. That's, uh, that's just a great bio. I tweet a lot. Um, making another welcome return to Fintech Insider, we're joined by Aditi uh, Sholapuka, who is the co-founder of Salt. Thank you for being here, Aditi. Can you remind our audience about Salt and also your background in the payment sector?
2: Thank you so much. Uh, such a pleasure to be here. So, so yeah, Salt is a fintech platform aimed at bridging the gender gap that exists in financial services. It is hemmed by three amazing women, if I I may say so myself, Um, and, and, you know, we have a collective background across fintech and financial services, I think, over 50 years. And so hopefully we solve this problem. My own background spans um, investment banking, fintech, both consumer and institutional, and, and payment, surprisingly, has been the common thread. I was an FX trader at Citi at the earlier part of my career, and nothing teaches you about friction in payments the way working in FX as an asset class does. And I had the good fortune of um, helping set up Paytn's payments bank in India. And again, nothing teaches you better about consumer payments. And most recently, before I started Salt, I was heading um, strategy for global institutional fintech, Neum, and my remit specifically was Expanding our global footprint, which meant getting licenses in different parts of the world. And again, nothing teaches you about the effect of regulatory inefficiency than that job description. So very excited to be having this
0: conversation. Yeah, oh my goodness, so many markets and so many different regulators to get into there. Uh, Making out the panel and making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Anna Habino, who's Banking Expansion Senior Manager over at WISE. Um, Great to have you with us, Anna. Um, Audience probably heard of WISE, but can you give us some information on your focuses uh, inside of uh, our our good friends at WISE?
3: Yeah, sure, of course. And uh, thanks for having me here today. It's really great to be here. Um, So I currently lead banking expansion for the Middle East and Africa region at WISE. So what that means is that I look after regulatory license applications in new markets that WISE is entering into. And I also sometimes interact with regulators in a more, let's say, like informal setting, for example, when they're considering new initiatives or maybe changes to the law. Um, And separately, I'm also responsible for our partnerships with banks and payment service providers who help us move customers' funds in the countries we operate in. Um, and before I started covering the Middle East and Africa region, um, previously I was, all, I was covering the Asia-Pacific region, uh, doing the same role. So mainly uh, in that capacity, I was looking at our expansion efforts in Thailand, Vietnam, Japan, and New Zealand. Um, and before WISE, I spent, I've spent some time on the uh, trading floor uh, in the FX uh, business, um, and also a little bit of time at uh, Fintex in Germany and also in San Francisco.
0: We have a really good panel here, as you can tell, listeners. I'm excited to get into this. Like The mix of experience and backgrounds is is super exciting. Um, But before we get into the nuances of the global payments industry, um, we want to take a particular market and describe each bits of it in in three words. These can be adjectives, verbs, or company names. So, uh, Riza, I'm going to start with you please describe the payment space in the markets you operate in. Um, What are the three words that come to mind when you think payments in Africa?
1: Thank you, Simon. Um, Number one would be uh, bursting, uh, as in bursting at the seams. Um, A a lot of the activity in recent years uh, shows quite clearly a lot of growth and uptake of digital financial services, primarily distributed through mobile. And even though we have like a a small budding nascent fintech industry, the existing financial services players such as the telcos and the banks, they're all seeing like um, a lot of growth. So I think the industry is certainly bursting. Number two is uh, it's fragmented. I think it's, it's, it's really quite fragmented. Um, From the marketing perspective, we love to sell Africa as a singular homogenous place, but in actual reality, you're dealing with like 55, 55 different uh, jurisdictions that all have their own regular Regulatory framework, some of which are uh, vastly different from uh, all of the others surrounding it, and it is uh, you start from you know zero everywhere you go. Um, And third would be uh, exciting. Um, I'm very privileged to to speak to a lot of uh, players in the space uh, at all levels. And the challenge in front of us uh, is 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 quite significant, but uh, people wake up every day and bring their best foot forward in order to actually advance the industry. And um, it, it brings a lot of joy uh, to my heart when I see the way that people collaborate. It's a lot of uh, what others might view as competing entities in Africa are actually all partnered up because of how early it is. And we still have so much work to do.
0: I love that feel of an early ecosystem um there's nothing quite like it It reminds me of the early days of the london fintech scene you know it's just kind of uh, but there is that generally in fintech as well i think like things that incumbents would find super oh we can't talk to anybody about like actually we've all got the same problems the industry just sh- shares where it's non-competitive like oh yeah this is broken we all agree this is broken how did you fix that Uh, Aditi, uh, three words uh, that come to mind when you think uh, about India in particular.
2: Um, So I'm going to use my three words a little bit differently. And my three words are a sentence, uh, payment as commodity, because to be honest, that is what has happened in the Indian, at least the domestic payment scene, right? Um, It is a very powerful culmination of, I want to say, of course, like, you know, um, technological advancement systemic support. And when I say that, I mean, you know, regulatory government, just the overall ecosystem. And most importantly, the kind of innovation that can almost exclusively only come from constraints, right? Because when you think of a country like India, 1.4 billion people, not one consistent language, economically, not the kind of country that would be primed for, let's say, super high smartphone penetration and so on and so forth. The fact that India is where it is in terms of digital payments and penetration is just Nothing short of, you know, being a marvel Um, and it's just, um, you know, it's like what you said, right? You keep figuring out what's broken and going about how to fix it. The great thing about the ecosystem is that it hasn't even been a case of forced inclusion, right? It's been a case of inclusion via innovation and that to me is amazing.
0: Mm, yeah, like the everybody forgets and we'll probably unpack it, the role of the Indian government, the role of UPI and 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 kind of that infrastructure and just how different India looks as a result of that to, to so many other markets. Uh, I think that's a great point. Anna, three words for Middle East in particular.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, probably the first word I'd use is interconnected. Um, so countries in the Middle East, they have payment ties to many parts of Asia. Um, but also into Africa and, of course, uh, Europe and the U.S. as well. So when you think about the geographical location and all the economic ties to so many parts of the world, I think it's something that's quite unique. Um, Second word I'd probably use is huge. Um, So uh, we're talking about payments today. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia is one of the largest outward remittance countries in the world. And then um, also we've got countries like Kuwait and Qatar that are also like quite sizable markets. So that's just all to say that there's a lot of big opportunities for companies to pursue in the region. And I actually had to think a bit about the third one, um, but I'd say probably evolving is would be the third one. Um, so when you think about the region, so you, you're seeing everything from new regulatory frameworks being established Uh, And also like investment into building instant payment rails in various countries. So I think there's a lot of good change happening within the region. And I think this will all really help accelerate the regional payment landscape over the next few years.
0: There's definitely a, like the, the countries seem to move together and, and kind of like want to because they're so internationally connected, but they also look at each other. And if one country has um, an amazing new payments rail or a regulator that's pushing on fintech, then it, it seems to spread throughout the region in quite an interesting way. And you see that with industry sandboxes and you see that with payments rails, as you say. Super exciting to see the development there and the beginnings of a real fintech ecosystem sort of coming up. Um, all right. So um, I think it's probably time for a useful hit. History lesson. So, if you're not familiar with a given market, give me the TLDR version of um, DC. I'm going to start with you, India, and we briefly mentioned some top-down government initiatives. Like, what's your TLDR two-minute version of like what's been happening in the Indian market over the last couple of years, from where we were with incumbent banks to your know, various market entrants and, and the market structures.
2: Um, no, so that's a, that's an interesting thing to try and PLDR. The the deal with the Indian market, right? Like I said, um India is a very complex country, really large, as I said, you know, no common language, and, and there isn't one or two or three socioeconomic tiers, right? It's it's just way too many. And technology penetration depends exactly on those. So something that the Indian government and the regulator, which is the Reserve Bank of India, did right early on is, you know, the creation of the NPCI, which is the National Payments Corporation of India, which essentially was not just a government body, contrary to what a lot of people think it is, but actually a consortium of, you know, sort of the top 10 banks in the country, right? So where there already was a great underlying payment rails infrastructure in terms of, you know, our real-time growth settlements and so on and so forth, what NPCI did was the classic case of, you know platformization and productization wherein they built amazing turnkey solutions on top of that infrastructure. So everyone keeps talking about UPI, right? Which is um, essentially a, a fantastic wrapper, almost a virtual identifier built to make payment seamless and easy. Uh, but very few people know that UPI was even possible because the IMPS, so the immediate uh, payment system was created before that, right? So there's a lot of these small, unsung heroes in terms of things that were done in the ecosystem. And then I think um, another big game changer was, uh, you know, again, the classic Indian innovation and how the regulators enabled it. So a big revolution in terms of just democratizing payments and specifically small value payments happened in India because of the rise of wallets, right? Paytm being a fantastic example. And that again was born out of a prepaid instrument regulation that, Probably when it was created, no one even thought of a use case like Paytm, right? Where you would literally turn the industry on its head. And the interesting thing that happened was that when Paytm started doing so well, to you know, to the point that that when it came to small value payments, it was sort of eating into you know, banks and so on and so forth. Rather than throttling that innovation, the industry um, and the government enabled everyone else to come equally up to speed, right? So whether it was via UPI or standardizing bill payments, for example, under a singular payment system or standardizing toll payments, the industry has always enabled innovation as opposed to throttling innovation in one part of the industry under the guise of protectionism, which unfortunately is something that a lot of other markets haven't done, which is why you see this, you know, massive disparity even within the so-called First world or G10 world when it comes to payments.
0: I think that sort of intentional commoditization of something that an innovator did is super interesting, especially as you think about those wallets. Providers that are entering the market that have different geopolitical ambitions in some cases. So India is in this position where it's it's not necessarily worried. Uh, she's not necessarily worried about um, Facebook having too much control or Alibaba having too much control because she owns the pipes, she owns the rails, she owns the rules, and she can then make those decisions accordingly in a completely different way. Um, especially you know it's, as, as that starts to emerge. But that looks. Quite different, um, which, uh, as you said, in Africa, there are all the international wallets that are starting to, to come into the market. Give me a perspective, an African perspective, as you say, uh, which African perspective out of the 55 states Noted, um, but maybe pull out some themes that you see in in some of your key markets that, that, you know, you talked about mobile operators and what's the sort of previously on um, mobile money and money in in Africa that can kind of get our audience up to speed with things you should know.
1: Okay, cool. So, yeah, I think the the consistent theme across um, sub-Saharan African geographies is, is mobile. We have various types of mobile money, uh, mostly telco led, that's uh, very predominant in Eastern and Southern Africa and some parts of uh, West Africa, French speaking West Africa as well. Um, Then you've got like some outliers that are pretty uh, specific in terms of how they're structured. Nigeria is an example where you have uh, mobile money, but it's like led by banks. And South Africa is also very similar where you have mobile ish money, but it's like also led by banks. And, you know, there's, there's much higher card penetration in South Africa than there is anywhere else in Sub-Saharan Africa, really. Um, you're talking about average penetration rates of maybe less than 3% across the region at most. Um, so uh, on the Eastern Southern African side, except South Africa, it it is telco-led. So um, if you look at the, the group operators that are in the space, such as MTN, Money, Safaricom, M-Pesa, which... Uh, I, i'm sure all of your familiars by now all of your listeners are familiar with by now um, those type of models are predominant in those geographies um, the mobile network operators lead the development of mobile money and they've been able to distribute it um, using the sim card as, as as a distribution layer so mobile money works offline you don't necessarily have to be connected um, which is pretty important because uh, internet penetration rates on the continent are still not where they need to be even uh, electricity penetration is is nowhere near uh, where it needs to be but you have more people that uh, have access to mobile phones than have access to electricity continentally. So the mobile phone plays a very significant role uh, in the lives of people just beyond the communication function and some other value-added features that that might exist in the West. So it's a very central piece of uh, almost identity that has led to the adoption of these services. Now, there are some nuances that apply because of the differences between bank and telco. Uh, But yeah, I guess those are things that we'll unpack as as we go along.
0: Yeah, and I think very briefly, just the role of the agent and how mobile money looks different. It's not necessarily always an app and it's not necessarily always kind of the iPhone experience, right? I think um, the role of the agent and and the last mile in Africa is, is always super important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Agent networks have been very crucial to the development of mobile money and I draw parallels um, between this um, human agent, who is like a mechanism for offline distribution, um, very similar to what's happening with, uh, in Southeast Asia with the, the on-demand delivery apps and um, some parts of China uh, where you can pick up things at specific locations. These like uh, mom and pop shops play very interesting roles beyond just retail.
0: Perfect, uh, Anna. Uh, same question to you, really. Um, what's sort of the the history? You did allude to some of that in, in your introduction, and I think also uh, start to think about some of the some of the challenges faced by the region as well. So, uh, interested in your views on like what's been the history in the region, like if, if you were sort of five, ten years ago, and then what challenges is it facing as it looks forward to the next five to ten.
3: So I think in the Middle East, you know, compared to maybe like let's say Asia which I was covering before, um I think the regulatory framework has just kind of started becoming more matured maybe in the last let's say 2 years or so. Again, this kind of varies depending on the country you're 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 looking at. Um so I think in that sense like currently what we're seeing now is that okay, the regulatory framework is is, is there, you know, uh, companies are starting to apply to these new frameworks. Um, and then, you know, and then once these licenses are obtained, then, you know, we'll start having actual, you know, uh, companies offering the services and, you know, then I think over the next, you know, not even five to 10 years, that I, but I think over the next like two to three years, you'll start seeing more of these uh, mobile wallets becoming more prominent in these countries. So, you know, places, you know, like the biggest countries like UAE and Saudi Arabia, like these will be, you know, I think the first ones that I think about, especially when you think about the demand that there is there for, you know, for example, like cross-border remittances uh, out from the country. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have uh, uh, like countries like Israel, for example, so um, just earlier this month, there was a new payment services law memorandum that was published. And so that uh, Israel itself is also going through kind of like a regulatory, uh, let's say, like landscape shift and uh, just kind of taking a quick glance at the, the new memorandum that was published. Again, I think this is kind of, you know, like a right step forward into, um, you know, that fits the payment industry for the technology that it has right now. And I think this is also a really promising sign. So again, like although there are variations depending on the country, I think the framework is getting there. And so I think over the next five years, you'll really start seeing a lot more development, a lot more players.
0: I think there's something interesting that you're sort of alluding to there, which is the later a country is developing its um, fintech framework, often the more uh, it can learn from others. And so, you know, the the old advantage of the UK five, six years ago was it had a, you know, it was innovative on policy. It would push what was possible forward in terms of policy. But now some of the later movers, as I look at what Australia's done with its, uh, it's sort of smushed together GDPR and open banking into one rule set that's sort of more broadly applicable because they went, well, why is this all separate? Why don't we put this together? You see this with Singapore. You've seen that, as you say, ripple throughout the various parts of the Middle East, but uh, sorry, the um, uh, Asia Pacific. But as you look at Middle East, there's sort of, there's a network there and they can start to do it. So uh, always challenges moving across borders. I think Weezer said, you know, like the, with those, but the opportunity for them to put that together is super exciting. Um, so Weezer, I'm going to come back to you though and we're going to talk about challenges a little bit more uh, you know it's, there's a lot to be excited by you know, as you said bursting and excitement but you also said fragmented is fragmentation the biggest challenge and um what else are the other challenges that you sort of see when trying to build payment solutions inside of the the african continent
1: yeah. So I would I would say fragmentation is is definitely the biggest one. And it's not just like a regulatory fragmentation issue. It's like a currency fragmentation issue. So um, a lot of sub-Saharan African states got their independence from former colonial masters, hello, hello, uh, about like the 1960s for, for many of the countries. I'm from Malawi and we got our independence uh, from the UK in 1964. And, um, you know, we've... As a society, we've generally advanced to meeting our own needs uh, independently as a continent. Now, the challenge that exists today is that a lot of cross-border trade and cross-border commerce takes place between African currencies, but there's no liquidity between African currency pairs. So what happens is that, like, I'll be sitting in Malawi now, and I want to send money to somebody who's in Uganda uh, through Ugandan shillings. I first must buy dollars or pounds, and then send that person dollars or pounds, and then they must convert them to like Ugandan shillings. So um, the the regulatory framework was built on. Uh, The premise that there's going to be a, you know, quote unquote global currency that uh, underpins all economic activity and there's just no regulatory framework for the idea of real time uh, pan-African cross-border trade. Now, there are initiatives such as the Pan-African Payment Settlement System, PAPS, that was just launched a week and a half ago in Accra, Ghana, that's going to be like an alternative to SWIFT for banks um, to move money across African borders. But that's by far the the biggest challenge that currency fragmentation, which obviously then spills over into like a regulatory fragmentation because the regulation just doesn't recognize the use case of, of Weezer sitting in Malawi with his kwacha wanting to send Ugandan shillings to Uganda. But thankfully, um, because there's no infrastructure to replace and all of this stuff is being built out for the first time, we've been able to make some very significant advances in terms of how um, the technology is actually deployed and, you know, what sort of capabilities are there, but we're still, you know, a very, very long way to go to having as, Interconnected uh, financial system as exists in you know the eurozone with IBAN numbers and all of those fancy
0: things. IBAN numbers, indeed. I'm looking at two former FX traders who both leaned in when you (laughs) mentioned that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Anna and 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 sort of talk to talk to you there about what Lisa was saying. Would you say you see similar things in the Middle East and and what else are the big challenges?
3: Um. So I. I think the situation maybe is a is a little bit different. I don't think there's as much fragmentation as what you know Visa just described in Africa. Because you know, like for example, um, if you're in the UAE and if you want to send money and like let's say let us say you're still dealing in cash, you can still you know take the local currency and and try to send the remittance directly from that with the local currency. So that part I think is probably less affected in the Middle East. Um, I can envision maybe one other thing. So uh, instant payment rails is not something that every single country currently has at the moment. For the countries that do have instant payment rails, they might not be 24-7. So, for example, Israel already has a, a instant payment rails, but it's not it doesn't operate 24 hours. Uh, UAE and, for example, Egypt, they're... Uh, planning on rolling out their instant payment rails I think by the end of this year is what they're planning so the and then when I think in this day and age a lot of uh, consumers they expect a lot of things to happen instantly you know when you think about yourself like you, using an app if you see that circle spinning for more than 20 seconds you think okay okay something is wrong and you know I think more and more people will expect things to happen instantaneously and so i think the kind of the next step is you know for uh, a lot of countries in the region to start you know building or you know establishing these instant payment rails and then i think that really takes you know the region into the next next stage
0: Interesting to watch. Um, I think uh, Aditi, given your background in NEOM, you probably have some some views on on some of the things that have been said here, and uh, as well, how do you want to follow that specifically, giving an an Indian lens and some of the challenges uh, in that market as well?
2: So, look, obviously, right, intrinsic fragmentation in terms of currency or even core banking ecosystem is not a problem that you have in India. You know, it's one country. Um, a very interesting dichotomy, and and. Again, a lot of people I'm surprised who talk about the Indian payment landscape uh, don't know this is um, cross-border payments or any sort of international payments out of India are the literal exact opposite of the domestic payments ecosystem, right? So I think the biggest challenge and the biggest area for development, if, if you think about just, you know, like geopolitically, like, for example, how India is, right, it is. It is the second largest, um, you know, recipient of inward remittances is probably going to be for a while. But when it comes to outward remittances, specifically around um, capital payments or business-related trade payments, right? It's it's a pretty promising market, right? In absolute terms, in fact, um, the volumes are already pretty large, and that is where there is unbelievable friction. In part, because you know, India is um, a, a partially restricted curren- uh, currency. But also because the same sort of technological advancements that have made domestic payments a breeze have just not stretched, and it is being spoken about now. So there is a lot of talk about, you know, how how do you make UPI something that's internationally acceptable? How do you make that easy? But again, that solves such a small subset of the problem, right? For example, when we, you know, were setting up salt, just you know, creating an overseas subsidiary, it felt like harder than running the actual business, right? Because the payments was so full of friction. Um, so, so, you know, that's one big challenge. And I think the other challenge, and that's, that's, that's honestly common to the domestic as well as the cross-border payments landscape in India, is now that you've attained this almost... Um, so, you know, the consumer that Anna was talking about, right? Everything needs to be instant, fast, and perfect. You've solved the problem of giving them what they want, right? Your payments are already, like, fast and instant and free and near perfect. Now you have the reverse problem, right? In order to to proliferate acceptance, you push down economics like saying zero MDR and UPI or zero MDR and Rupee, which was like the domestic equivalent of Visa and MasterCard, right? Um, to the point that, yes, now you have your great penetration numbers, but the unit economics no longer work, right? And now you have the same industry players coming to you and saying, okay, you need to roll back this whole zero MDR thing and other versions of that, right? Because where's their incentive to keep investing in this and make this technology better? But the lazy answer is, sure, trade payments as a commodity, as a loss leader, but then you know that that's not how payments at this volume can sustain, right? So I think balance economic with... The same speed of proliferation, the same speed of service is going to be a very big challenge. And the third, I think, is just, you know, again, the standard problem of scale, Um, how to come combat fraud. Again, in a market where so many people might not be super educated, where they may not even understand English, how do you protect those sections of society against, you know, fraud, identity theft, so on and so forth, that are bound to happen when you have this level of penetration of digital payments?
0: You suddenly you've got a lot of people that can buy from a merchant across the whole country that might not have only been interacted with cash before. So now you've just opened them up to a whole new world of potential fraud on their side, but vice versa, you've got you've created a market in which a whole bunch of fraudsters can go attack a merchant who might have just been a mom and pop store before, but is trying out being online. So you've got it on, on all kinds of um, perspectives. We're just going to take a quick pause here uh, whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll be back very, very shortly. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings only event. That's right. No speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships, and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union, or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Uh, Weezer, you wanted to jump in um, about instant payments, I think? Yeah, uh, and it
1: said something um, about, I think, Israel or another uh, country in the region that doesn't have like 24-hour instant payments. And like I was contrasting that with Nigeria's uh, interbank settlement system, which is like the default equivalent of something like ACH or faster payments. And because there was no infrastructure to replace in Nigeria, when they did build a, a settlement system that worked for all the banks digitally, it was like real time by default. So if you're sending money to somebody in Nigeria, the only option that you have is a real time payment um, that works twenty four hours a day, <laughs> seven days a week, and um, I guess that's one of the benefits that arises from you know no no, no legacy infrastructure existing to replace. I opened my first US bank account um, earlier uh, in the year, and I was so shocked that it takes like two to three days for domestic payments to settle uh, in USD. And I'm like, this is the place where the dollars are from. Like, how is it so hard to move the you know? I get I get wire transfers into my dollar accounts in Kenya faster than domestic payments are processed in the U.S. and I just find that mind blowing. And I thought it was important to highlight that you know sometimes fragmentation and you know lack of there being something isn't always a bad thing.
2: No, interestingly, that's exactly what you know. I mean, I know we're not talking about Singapore, but that's exactly what happened here, right? U.S.D. settlement here is actually weirdly. Really- more efficient than USD settlement within the US. And I think even in India, the big advantage that we've had that the default that we started with was real time settlement, twenty-four by seven, you know, three sixty five days a year. And then and and then, you know, you just continued to better that as opposed to saying how do we become twenty-four by seven? So one hundred percent agree. I
0: don't know any thoughts there?
3: Uh, no, I was just going to actually like draw another parallel with Japan. So Japan, uh, you know, it's, they, they've had the, the Zenging system. And then when they started, when they wanted to start 24-7, instead of just extending that system, they said, okay, like the hours that's not served by the Zenging system, we're going to build a second system. It's going to be called the Zenging more. So, you know, like, I guess this is just kind of another example of, you know, if, if you're in a country that already has a legacy system, you know, sometimes it's just about like building a second one that'll just fill in the gaps versus, you know, like what we was saying, if you're starting from zero, you just build the best things, like straight off the bat.
0: I often say that, um, like uh, payment systems start to look like sedimentary rock um, they never go away you just add another layer on top of them and actually it's kind of great that you can just start from, from scratch inside, architectures inside most banks look like sedimentary rock you can tell the lineage of CIOs and what technology was popular in what decade just by taking a cross section of the, the bank architecture um, and you see that in, in countries as well um, and of course I uh, know this is probably near and dear to your heart but uh, in, in China there's obviously there was cup data and there was all of the sort of cards type of infrastructure but it was so small that when mobile took off the the tech giants started to to really take over um but i think that tech giant story is kind of an interesting one to think about um aditi we talked about sort of the role of of india i'm interested Weezer, in you know are are the tech giants is the foreign investment going to really impact africa we've seen players like stripe and paypal make local investments how much do you think foreign investment is going to influence the 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 payments landscape
1: yeah um I don't know about influence in terms of like changing the ultimate direction where things are going to go. Uh, I think right now it's mostly foreign funds that are leading investments on the continent, but there's still a very healthy mix of like local investors and local capital. Now, what was happening prior was that a lot of the, the local money was not really familiar with the VC model and was perceived as like very risky. So that, that pay stack liquidity event actually ended up doing a lot to demonstrate a positive story of like what's actually possible there. Um, A lot of founders today will still complain that it's very hard to raise local capital, especially at favorable terms. So I think that, you know, the availability of foreign capital is better off than having no capital at all. But like in the the grand scheme of things, um, it's still the founders who are building the businesses on the ground and they understand the local nuances and how to build an enduring business in each and every market. And that's ultimately what's going to shape things uh, going forward. Now, in, even if you look at the Paystack example with Stripe, um, not a lot has changed at, at Paystack. They're still running it independently, and it's still able to have its own culture. So I think that's, that's what we're going to likely see. We might see more outright acquisitions with the, with the intention of uh, consuming the business or absorbing it under brands, and that it, 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 it remains to be seen what that's going to look like in practice. But you know, the environment demands a, a certain type of approach, and no amount of influence can uh, overcome
0: that it's yeah it's it's kind of the uh, the market dynamics are always going to shape what's important not just pure investment it's 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 wisdom as old as time but worth restating for, for everybody involved absolutely um Anna as you think about the Middle East like the the foreign investment and I guess local investment picture starts to look a little bit different given um, there are some some sort of family offices and sovereign wealth funds um, but but how do you think sort of the foreign players foreign ecosystems will fare as they look at the middle east versus homegrown solutions and payments players
3: um that's an interesting question um i think what we've seen so far is that i, I think you are right that um in in certain countries in the middle east you do need quite a lot of uh, local knowledge let's say or you know uh maybe the regulators prefer speaking to someone locally or someone who speaks uh, the local language or something like this. So, and, you know, like in in some countries, it's a little bit more so than uh, other countries. Um, So I think when it comes to international players entering these markets, I mean, there are, there probably are certain like regulatory expectations on, you know, how many people you need to hire depending on the country. But then there'll also be kind of uh, beyond the regulatory expectations, there might be some other kind of unspoken expectations as well, and I think that all really depends on, you know, the uh, how how you decide to approach it. Do you, do you hire you know more people on the ground? But you know, as an international company, likewise, we run our business as a global operation. So you know, for a lot of uh, international companies like us, we a lot of our operational hubs are. Um, in various parts of the world, and we that's how we keep our operations efficient. And that's also how we keep uh, certain operating costs low, so that the fees that we have to charge to our customers also remains low. So I think it's really a balancing act for international players um, when we go into these markets.
0: I think that hub and spokes model of of kind of uh, understanding your market, but sort of being able to work around it, is, is, is uh, super valuable. And again, it's that local knowledge thing that that kind of comes up. So, a DC um, geopolitics in India are like uh, meant to be together. I don't know. It's just such an interesting part of the world. Uh, so. And you haven't got long left because we're nearly out of time, unfortunately. But uh, what are your main most takeaways from watching different foreign players try and enter the market, different investments try and enter the market over the last few years?
2: So, um, two two broad trends, right? When you look at big tech entering India to be an operator, right? So whether it's WhatsApp entering UPI or whether it's, um, you know, Amazon trying to do Amazon fee and now getting into wealth or um, Google's pay Right? I, I mean, it's the, the biggest payment market uh, for Google is India. Um, that's that's clearly, this is a really big market, and that's clearly an operator incentive, right? That I need to be in this market, not just from an investment perspective, but as an operator. And obviously, the investment follows, because to be an operator, you need to pour significant amounts of money into the market. Um, We are also seeing just pure FII, or just institutional investment, right? Which is like, for example, um, large sort of Foreign funds or strategic investors taking massive stakes in companies like Paytm or you know um, Razorpay or sort of the large institutional and domestic fintech, and that again is fueled a little bit by the story that look the market is so large that even at current levels of penetration, just in terms of a volume in a GTV game, it's it's massive, right? The challenge always happens in profitability, but I mean we've learned by now that we see money is not necessarily after profitability immediately. So I don't honestly see the trend changing anytime soon. I know a lot of, lots was said about, oh my God, the PTM IPO is like the disaster of the decade and it's, I, that's not going to happen, right? Those are just tiny bits of noise that you hear. So many companies struggle after IPO. I think overall, it's just a massively robust market because people are now looking to tap what was underpenetrated right so for example people are getting over the whole smartphone thing because people are building for feature phones using sound waves using near field technology right so the size of what is the truly addressable market is going to keep growing and that's why I don't really see the dynamics of foreign investment whether to just invest or to be operators changing anytime soon.
0: Yeah, a wholly target addressable market. If you're in VC and you like a, a big old target, a big old TAM, then yeah, you've got to be looking at these, all, all three of these markets. It'd be hugely exciting. Um, we are almost out of time. Um, so I'm just going to ask each of you very quickly to give me the one thing you're really looking forward to in 2022. What should we be watching for uh, what What do you think we should be watching for in 2022 as you look across Africa?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's a a big theme that I'm seeing is around integration. And uh, it turns out that blockchain technology seems to be advancing that agenda in the absence of common sense regulation. Uh, quick start, uh, over $100 billion came into Africa last year in terms of on-chain peer-to-peer transfers, and there aren't any regulatory frameworks on how to measure that and how to put in place safeguards, but the demand is there, so I think uh, naturally people are going to progress towards uh, putting in place some some frameworks around it.
0: Yeah, stable coins. US dollar stable coins is a euro dollar for everybody else. Um, is is going to be an interesting trend to Absolutely. watch. Um, and I, I love that that made the FX one of the FX traders, former FX traders, laugh because that is like the target addressable market of that joke <laughs> is is extremely small. Um, so I'm I'm here for <laughs> that joke. Had low time. Um, alrighty, uh, Anna. How about you? Uh, what are you watching for in 2022 in the Middle East?
3: Uh, so. It's- Well, specifically in the middle, I'm not sure if this is specifically to the Middle East, but I think this is kind of going to be broad. But, um, you know, you you see all these uh, regulatory uh, frameworks being established. And um, I think also, uh, hopefully we get out of, uh, we start coming out of COVID. And I think there will be quite a lot of uh, cross-border e-commerce continuing to grow. So I think particularly in the e-commerce space, I think there is going to be a lot more you know different types of uh ways to pay uh within e-commerce but specifically cross-border e-commerce so you know things like buy now pay later um different like you know maybe like mobile wallet payment options and just like overall just easier ways to play and i think particularly you know for example like noom is is one of the players but you know we're starting to see more companies integrating with uh Uh, fintech rails or, you know, networks or APIs that fintechs provide, which means that I think generally, uh, among a lot of uh, companies, there's appetite to provide more seamless frictionless payments uh, for your own customers. So I think we'll continue seeing that this year.
0: Rapid, P-Pro, all of these providers who do sort of bits and pieces of direct access to local clearing and and other things, and then the great APIs that allow you to to collect from different payment types, um, move money to different payment types. Exciting trend to watch. Um, And Aditi, just finishing us off, what are you watching for in 2022 in India?
2: So um, towards the end of 2021, there were a bunch of reports published around how India should not even aspire to have 100% smartphone penetration in fact we won't even be at 60% like by 2040 uh, we're currently at you know somewhere around 35 40% and so it's it's interesting um, that the industry is responding and has been responding for a while by developing for the non smartphone non internet connectivity market right specifically as i you know said earlier around what can we do with feature phones what can we do with sound wave technology right um, and and to me, that is so interesting because that is a hitherto completely untapped market, right? That's a TAM whose like, unit economics haven't been discovered. That's a time whose profitability hasn't been discovered. And I think if we're able to even technologically track that and over time scale it economically, it could be a game changer, not just for India, but arguably internationally, right? Because there are a lot of countries in the world where Either smartphone or internet becomes an access and an affordability problem and, and no one solves for that because you haven't finished solving for the rest. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to.
0: Let's see what, yeah, holding moly, does uh, payments have a last mile problem? And do uh, markets like India and Africa have lots of last miles to try and reach in various different ways? And we got to think differently about how we get there. Uh, all right, that wraps up this week's discussion. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? I'm going to start with you, Weezer. On Twitter,
1: at WeezerJ, where there is a gateway to everything I've ever put on the Internet.
0: I've... Wow, that's an advertisement. Aditi, how about you?
2: Um, so you can reach us at um, my app, which is M-Y-S-A-L-T-A-B-P on Twitter or Instagram. You can reach me, my co-founders, what we're building and, and so much content that we put out about, you know, just Indian ecosystem, payments, financial services, women, money, everything.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Anna?
2: and uh for
3: me personally you can find me on linkedin and to learn more about wise you can go to wise.com and we're also on instagram under wise account
0: perfect thank you for listening if you like what you heard remember to go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave us a review it helps us so so much if you leave us a review what are you doing right now you could you could just leave us a review if you're listening right now just go, go into the app leave us a review do it uh all right thank you so much that wraps us up goodbye for now